This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the concept of a four-day work week, is it possible here? Changing the image of a private yacht club and a taste of home with Miss P. But we begin with the latest on the vaccine roller coaster. More vaccine confusion. Earlier this week, the World Health Organization's chief scientist warned individuals against mixing and matching, calling it a dangerous trend. Quote, we are in a data-free, evidence-free zone as far as mix and match. That same WHO scientist later clarified in a tweet that people should not make those decisions outside of public health regulations. So what are we going to do with all of this? Here to offer calm and clarity on the WHO's confusing messaging and other vaccine-related issues is Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist. Welcome to the feed. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Anne. My pleasure. So the WHO had to do some massive damage control after making some of the claims that they did earlier this week. What are your thoughts on what was said and how it was handled? The WHO has had a communication problem, and and they've had one since the beginning of the pandemic. Part of it is that they're trying to talk to 7 billion people, and that message sometimes is more or less applicable in some places than others. A main concern, I think, that the chief scientist was airing is individuals going rogue and loading up on multiple different vaccines, going vaccine shopping and, and maybe having many, many shots. That was the main message there. But when we're in Canada and we're listening to it saying, well, we've been told that mixing to MNRA vaccines are are, are fine. Are we now being told that's not fine? And that's the confusion. So in the warning that came out from the chief scientist of the WHO, it was said that, well, and I quoted this in the intro, data-free and evidence-free. It's a zone that they're in that that she feels that we're in as far as mix and match is concerned. So data-free and evidence-free, does that not alarm you? Well, I disagree with that statement. I think we have very clear evidence that mixing mRNA vaccines with AstraZeneca is safe and effective, possibly more effective than than a single vaccine. There's some some data that suggests that. Moreover, we have been doing mixing of vaccines in Canada for some time. We have an adverse event reporting system, and we pay very close attention to who gets COVID and what their vaccination history is. So we've got a lot of data to say we're doing it right. So why then, why did they come out with this pronouncement earlier this week? What was the timing in it? I'm not sure this, why there's a specific timing. Again, I think the WHO really has a communication problem, and they, they're trying to talk to the whole world at once, which is not going to make sense in a lot of local contexts. The reaction, at least here in Ontario, was swift and pretty negative. In fact, I witnessed watching live television earlier this week people literally turning away when they were told that they were getting a vaccine that wasn't their first dose. The second dose was different from the first. They literally turned on their heels and they walked out of line. I feel really disappointed by that. I think it's people, and I don't blame the individuals. Uh, it's easy to call names and say you're being selfish or you're being foolish. They're confused. They're anxious. It's a very anxiety-inducing situation. I think our own public health communication has something to do with it. I'm told in BC they don't use the term Pfizer and Moderna. They talk about mRNA vaccine, and there isn't the same differentiation there, and they don't have the same kind of problem there. So that suggests to me that we've kind of created a little bit by attaching brand names 
change the vaccines uh, so consistently and so regularly that this is the way people are now thinking. And yeah, they're worried. They're anxious. I, I, I don't blame them for feeling confused and anxious. They're also worried about what they're reading in terms of side effects. So you look at Johnson & Johnson, and there are some side effects that are emerging that cause nerve damage. Pfizer, we've been reading about the possibility of enlarged hearts. And we know about the messaging that came out after many of us had AstraZeneca as our first shot, that there was a, a, an increase in the risk of blood clots. Side effects, the information, what do we do with that information and how do we best make decisions when we're hearing from so many different governing bodies about what's good, what isn't, what should be done, what should be taken, and also the side effects? Side effects are part of what causes the anxiety no question. And when drugs, new drugs are tested, any drugs, vaccines, other kinds of drugs, they're tested on thousands and then tens of thousands of people. So most side effects are, are discovered and are noted. And if they're severe enough, obviously the drug doesn't get approved. When there's really rare side effects, they may not get picked up in a trial of 50,000 people. You may need a million people in order to find them. And so when you get that one case of a fatal blood clot or something else that's absolutely devastating, that's fatal or life-altering, it's, it seems terrifying, but it, we have to take in the context to say, well, if that's going to happen, say in the case of AstraZeneca, one case in 100,000, the risks of COVID, of long-haul COVID, of brain damage, of death from COVID are actually higher. <laughs> so you, it, 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 we, we could do a better job, I think, of explaining to people the math, the, the risk level that says, yes, this looks scary, but it is much less risky and less scary than the alternative, which is contracting COVID. Pfizer is asking for approval for a third shot from the U.S. and from European regulators. Not really sure what they're proposing in terms of Canada. What is Pfizer's rationale when it comes to thinking, wanting, needing a third shot? I think we could look at it a couple of different ways. Pfizer is a corporation that has a bottom line. They are in the business of selling drugs. I think if they see a market opportunity to sell a third round to the world, they're, they're going to jump on that, and, and that's kind of understandable. However, there's another piece to it, which is if... The, if COVID manages to mutate to escape vaccines, the world is going to be screaming at Pfizer, why didn't you anticipate this? Why didn't you save us? Uh, so I think Pfizer is, is probably trying to thread a needle here. They want obviously to sell more vaccine, but they also need to be in a position to be able to respond if that becomes really necessary. So I'm glad they're doing the R&D. I'm glad they're working on a modified booster that may uh, take care of uh, some of the reduction in efficacy from some of the strains. I think that's great. It might be a little bit early to start waving the banner of getting approvals and lining people up for a third shot. I, that may well be what we need. But it's it's gonna <laughs> I think it's going to create a little bit of cynicism and a little bit of skepticism uh, that this is drugs for the sake of drugs. So I, I think it's a very difficult communication and planning problem they have. It also impedes the donation of vaccines to poor countries. I should think if more people are going to be receiving a third shot, then what about the poor countries that are not getting any vaccines? Well, I think that's a, that's an excellent point, and let's be clear: we're not going to be safe until everyone is safe. COVID is a is a global problem, but I don't think governments are going to be lining up to approve that third shot and fund that third shot uh, without evidence, without a reason to do so. I know Canada has inked a contract. I mean, we've done the prudent thing: let's get in line. If this is needed, we're going to be in line, and I think that's smart. But that's a long way from saying, "Okay, we're taking delivery, and we want people now to get that third shot." So hopefully, we won't do that. 
unless it's necessary. And I really hope that the global vaccine supply in the coming months, before we need to face this, uh, the specter of a third booster, I hope the vaccine supply globally rises and we're able to really take care of the global south in a way that we haven't really so far. Call on the Delta variant is now the dominant form of new coronavirus cases in many countries. Our new Chief Medical Officer of Health here in Ontario, Dr. Kieran Moore, said earlier this week that he absolutely expects to see a rise in COVID-19 cases starting in September. What are your thoughts on this? Are we talking about a fourth wave? So first, I'm going to say that I have a really high opinion of Dr. Moore, and I think when he talks, we would all do well to listen. That's new in Ontario, and not a moment too soon. I agree. I I, I see it the same way, Um, and I see it this way because of examples that have been set by others. We have not been first in the pandemic, not since the beginning, and we have been able to forecast what's going to happen here, partly by looking at the UK and Israel and the United States and other places that have had COVID a little bit ahead of us, and they've experienced this. They've experienced um, a, a rise from Delta, which is very aggressive, which is far more efficient at transmission. Um, when restrictions are, are, are loosened, at the same time that vaccination is good, maybe great, but not excellent. And we're in the same situation. So I think, you know, you, you only need so many dots before you can recognize that straight line. We're on that straight line. And yes, it's coming. But when you talk about the word wave, so what makes something a wave? I've been calling it a wave that we're going to have a fourth wave because that's the lexicon. Uh, Dr. Moore has said, well, there's going to be a rise in cases. And another colleague of mine said, well, are we, should we call it a wave if we're going to have these uh, hot spot outbreaks that can be controlled? Well, you know, now we're arguing about semantics. There's definitely going to be cases. There's definitely going to be a burden on our healthcare system. I do not believe we're going to need broad measures like lockdowns, but we are going to need broad measures like masks to continue. So I think we're, we're it, it's, whether we call it a wave or whether we call it wavelets or whether we call it uh, a series of outbreaks, that's in our future. There's, there's no question. We're doing a great job in vaccination, but Delta is a step ahead of us. So what you've just said and what Dr. Moore said earlier in the week, will this kind of of projection, of, of statement that there is the possibility that we'll see a rise in cases, and for some they feel it's a certainty, will that encourage those who are sitting on the fence when it comes to being vaccinated? The anti-vaxxers, and that's very extreme, but those who are not vaccinated yet. Well, yeah, we can divide up the people who aren't vaccinated yet into a few different categories, and I think it's going to move the needle with some of them. I think we may need to see that rise in cases first. Some people really do want to wait and see, and Ontario's been kind of like that since the beginning of the pandemic. We've, we've not been very proactive. So individuals are a little bit like that, too. Uh, we may need to see some really scary outbreaks, and, and the stats that show the proportion of people who are getting really sick that are not vaccinated, it's going to be close to 100%. There are some people who simply aren't going to believe those statistics, so that's another issue. But I, I, one thing I wish Ontario and Canada did uh, or committed to was the idea of demonstrating proof of vaccination to participate in certain kinds of things. The fourth wave is up to us. We don't have to have it, but we're opening up indoor environments and we're not asking for proof of vaccination. That enacts this wave. That's the, those are choices that we've made, social choices that we've made, that we're going to accommodate people who choose not to be vaccinated, we're going to mix with them, and we're going to have cases and transmission as a result. So I wish we, we were doing things a little bit differently. Um, it would be uh, 
a little bit controlling compared to what Canadians are used to. Then again, uh, two years ago, if you'd asked me whether we were doing lockdowns and other kinds of things in Canada that were so restrictive, I, I, I would have found it unimaginable, and I, I think most people would have. It doesn't seem to me to be such a big stretch to say if you want to participate in certain things, if you want to be in in-person classes in university, if you want to do indoor dining, if you want to go to the gym, show us your proof of vaccination so we're all safe. That would change the course for us, but we we are not doing that. We've chosen not to do that. I'm, I'm a bit disappointed. At least at this point, and as we speak, we are now in step three, stage three, and it means that there will be indoor activity, as you mentioned, people going to gyms and, and not necessarily being asked for some sort of proof of vaccination. I find it fascinating, and and again, it's just what I know today, that you don't have to prove that you've been double vaccinated uh, to go to a long-term care home to visit, but you have to show proof if you're going to a strip club. What the heck is that? It's a little bit of a wild west, and I think it, it's it's a classic Canadian reluctance to kind of take a hard line where we need to take a hard line. And so, different industries have have managed this differently. I think I, I think strip clubs are looking at it, saying, "Well, our customers who really want to come will will be compliant. We don't want to get shut down." I, I imagine that's the logic of strip clubs saying, "We don't want public health pointing the finger and saying that's where the outbreak happened." And I think that's smart. I actually really do think that's smart. Um, universities aren't facing being shut down; they have to move things online, and, and we've already gone through that process, for example, so that there may not be the same motivation um, on, on the side of the institution to say, well, we better do this for our own good. So I, I suspect it's, it's a simple, rational look at the situation by a particular industry saying, yeah, we, we, should, we should require this. If I owned a gym, I would absolutely require vaccination. I do not want to be on the front page of any newspaper as where the problem started. As an infection control epidemiologist, can I ask you this, and you said it earlier in our conversation, is there the chance that this virus could mutate beyond the, the force of vaccines so that it would be something that would never be aff- affected or controlled by vaccinations? I think the short answer is no one knows. However, I think if I if I have to speculate, I would say probably not. I think vaccines are probably going to win, and if COVID is able to start to escape them, it's a gradual process. It's it's more of what we've seen, which is a new variant where the vaccine doesn't work nearly as well or doesn't work quite as well. Um, it's not going to be that we wake up one day and all of a sudden we have a bug that doesn't care about the vaccine. That that I don't I don't foresee that. It's, it's a slower evolutionary process, and COVID is a slowpoke in, in mutation. There's a lot of lack of clarity around that, but for the kind of virus it is, it's got a gene that actually does proofreading when it copies, so it doesn't, which is very weird. It doesn't, it's not adaptive for COVID, and this is one of the few pieces of good news we have, is that we're actually able to move with mRNA vaccine technology, we're able to move faster than the virus, uh, it seems to me. And so the idea of this sort of third booster that, that Pfizer is talking about could certainly target very readily, change the recipe very readily, target changes or mutations that allow it to escape the vaccine. We don't have to start all over again. We just have to tweak the recipe. And that makes me feel pretty confident that we may need a third booster. Gosh, we might even need a fourth one in the year, maybe. But it feels to me like, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to win. It's just the end game is a bit long and, and 
gosh, we're all exhausted and it can feel like it's never going to be over. But I, I feel optimistic about the, about the long game. Colin, what's your message to those of us who are fully vaccinated, who are terrified from time to time reading the headlines? And what is your message to those who refuse to be vaccinated at this point? Vaccination is going to be the difference between being at risk and not being at risk. It's very simple. We're already seeing the numbers. If you are vaccinated, you still want to avoid exposure. If you have kids under 12 at home, you do not want to go to indoor environments without masks. That's just extending the kind of caution and logic that we've had over the past year. We're not in a different situation. We're not in a worse situation. We're in a better one. But for those who aren't vaccinated, the risks are higher. Delta is far more transmissible than the COVID we had last year. And so there's this huge choice individuals need to make. Am I going to choose safety or am I going to choose risk? It it really just gets down to that. Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Thanks. After the break, a four-day work week. Yes. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. A four-day work week. Now that is appealing. Tina Cortez with the details. We know the pandemic has changed how and where we work. Is this the time then as employers prepare to welcome employees back to the workplace to explore a shortened work week, a flexible schedule, a permanent work-from-home option? Joining us on the feed is Chris Higgins, Professor Emeritus at Western University. Professor, thank you for joining the feed. Oh, my pleasure. So your research started in the 80s, and it was about the impact of technology on the workplace. How did that morph into maybe focusing on alternative work arrangements, even before this pandemic, obviously? Uh, well, I, I actually don't even remember how it morphed into that, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, but what we found back in the, in, the, in the 80s in our research was a big problem with work-life balance. People were working long hours. And of course, back then, you worked from the office. So, you know, it wasn't unusual for 45, 50, 55 hours a week at the office. And of course, that means less time at home, which means uh, less work-life balance. So do you think a four-day work week, much like what is already in play in Iceland, is is a good idea here in Canada? You know, I think all these alternative work arrangements are excellent ideas. Um... The four-day work week has been around, believe it or not, forever. They used to call it the compressed work week, and people would work uh, 10 hours a day for four days as opposed to uh, five days at eight hours. The Iceland trial is a bit problematic to to, to think it's going to work in North America because they reduced the number of hours they were working over the four days but kept the pay the same. So essentially they just took five hours off the people's work work thing and um, did it over four four days. There's no way a a trial in Iceland would ever work in Toronto because we call it generalized external validity. Well, research in this setting work in another setting. It will never work here because employers are not going to say, okay, I'm just going to reduce your work week by five hours and pay you the same. 
So, you know, we, it'll be the compressed work. It will be longer hours over four days. And does that have an impact, do you think, on productivity? Uh, yeah, well, so what we found, and now I'm going to caveat this, it, it's back It's back a long time ago. Uh, what we found was uh, productivity in the last couple of hours of the day really decreased uh, pretty much across all job types, but but certainly across those that were physically demanding jobs. People just weren't as able to be as productive in the last two hours. And even, you know, computer programmers and office jobs, you know, 10 hours is a long day. So we did find um, a decrease in productivity. But the one thing for sure, though, is employees absolutely loved it. Getting that that extra day off uh, made their work-life balance way better. And this can't possibly apply then to every type of employment, though, can it? No, no, of course not. I mean, I have no idea, but I'm going to guess 30 to 40% of the jobs could probably go to a four-day work week. Um, but you think about, like the Iceland trial, which is really interesting, they, they were government employees. Could you imagine if we took our government employees who were serving the public and, and you know, every day you got 20% less employees working? I mean, I know they could work longer hours, but but uh, I don't think that would make up the fact that when you when you randomly call, you're gonna, you're you're going to get twenty percent less people. So I, I just don't think it's going to work for certain some kinds of jobs. And how could employers, especially right now, how could they sustain this scenario when they're some of them are just getting back on their feet? Yeah, so, you know, the, the whole thing is, is we have a chance right now to have a real hard look at how we do things. People say, you know, I'm working from home, I love it, but I don't think they love it, love it. I, I think a hybrid's going to be what happened. I think we're going to stay working at home, I'm going to guess, two, three, four days a week, but coming into the office one or two days, because I think people need that social interaction they get from 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 being in the office. I Zoom meetings are, are fine, but after a while, they just they just don't cut it. So I think we're going to see a hybrid with work at home. I think we'll see hybrids with um, flexible work hours. One of the things we found that really reduces stress is, is flexible hours. So, uh, you know, I can start at 9 or 8.30 or 10. In certain jobs, that's possible too. So uh, there's a lot of different things we can do, and, and maybe now's the time to do a reset and, and take a look at everything. And so you're suggesting then that the hybrid or possibly flexible hours would help with the work-life balance? Oh, we know it does. One of the biggest things we saw in our research was you give people flexibility in their job. So let's say you had to take two hours off to take a kid to an appointment. If you could leave your office for two hours, come back, but make those two hours up some other time, tremendous. Um, of course, there's some jobs that you just simply can't do that. You know, retail, for example, there's no way you want your salespeople leaving the store. So, you know, again, it's going to be on a job-by-job basis. And so how do employers make this adjustment? How do they start to accept that that work and work-life balance is going to be part of their scenario going forward? Well, I think that, yeah, I, I think they know it. Um, and I think that the very best employees are going to demand it. So I think that the employers are going to say, well, if I want the best employees, then I'm going to have to cater to what they want. Uh, you know, and I think uh, there's a, there are a lot of employers who really get it. Like, they really, really get that work-life balance is important. And uh, so I think we're going to see it happen, uh, you know, slowly, but it's going to happen. So what's your message to employees and employers at this time? 
I think my message is be open-minded. Be open-minded. Uh, have a meeting, um, not a Zoom meeting. <laughs> have a meeting and uh, talk about the job. Now, if you look at that Iceland study, it wasn't just the, the four-day work week. They looked at all aspects of the job, like how many meetings do we have? What are our processes? So there's a whole lot of things they can do in addition to just changing the, the, uh, the hours to, that can really help um, streamline the job and, and allow people to have a life outside of work. Do you think that this Iceland experiment is going to continue? In Iceland, it will. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what so. People working less and giving them the same amount of money. Are you think they're going back? <laughs> yep, you're right there. Chris Higgins, <laughs> Professor Emeritus from Western University, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. It was absolutely my pleasure. Good luck with you. Miss P Caribbean flavor, sauces that will definitely whet your appetite and spice up your life. But what does the P in Miss P stand for? Passionate, persistent, persuasive, particular, popular, proud. How about perfect? Rebecca Taylor is the founder of Miss P Caribbean Flavor. The highway to culinary greatness for her has been a bit bumpy and with detours, but she's back behind the wheel, still in charge, making it happen, and here to share her roadmap to sauce success. Hi, Rebecca Taylor, a.k.a. Miss P. Welcome to the feed. Well, thank you, Anne. It's great to be on board. I am so excited to be talking to you today. You know, I think of all the things you've done in your short life, quite frankly, and I'm amazed at how you've remained buoyant. You've had some real challenges. Let's talk about those challenges. Your first business was that of a clothing distribution company in Toronto. You went from one store to three warehouse locations. What happened there? Yes, um, back in 2001, after 9-11, I was importing all my products. All my clothing was coming out of the U.S., but after 9-11, we had a setback. And uh, that affected me whereby I had to close up shop. I closed all three of my warehouses, and I decided to move back to New York where I grew up. And that's when I moved back to New York. I started in the real estate business. And I did extremely well there for the short while that we did. But then again, catastrophe hit me. And in 2008, with the financial housing market crash, I was affected again. So three times the charm. And, you know, I understand just from reading about you, and you're so interesting, that you felt most at home in the kitchen preparing Caribbean-style food for your friends and family. And your mom was a great influence. So how did that become a business? So I have to back up a little bit and tell you a little bit of history about me and who I am. So I was born in Guyana, and I grew up with a family where both my mom and dad owned their own businesses. So... The entrepreneurial spirit came from my parents in the upbringing. Growing up, we were neither rich nor poor. We had a good, happy life. And I grew up watching my parents work really hard to build what we had. And I just thought that through hard work, you can succeed in life. doesn't matter what you're doing, as long as you work hard. And at the age of 15, I, my dad, who just recently passed, who was my hero, um, he helped me to become uh, open my first business. So I have to say at age 15, I started up as an entrepreneur. And however, that didn't last too long because a year later, my parents migrated to New York and 
then I got married and started a family, started my fashion business, and the rest was history, as we talked about. So that brings us to today, Ready to Go Foods Incorporated, authentic Caribbean flavors. And the one I'm most interested in, Miss P Caribbean Sauces, actually pays sauces and all-purpose seasoning mix. How, how did you make that passion into a business? So, yes, yeah, so I, I just have to say, so my mom was my inspiration when it comes to my culinary skills. Um, at a young age of 10, she used to drag myself and my older sister into the kitchen, and she had a way of threatening us that the way to man had is to his stomach. So if we didn't learn to cook, pretty much she was saying to us, you're not going to get married. Um, but who cares? A little kid at 10, you don't care about getting married, right? But we have to learn. So the creation of that was as a result of my mom um, encouraging us to learn to cook and teaching us how to blend and grind spices to prepare authentic Caribbean meals. And Caribbean meals, as most people know, it's very labor-intensive. It's a combination of many different spices culminated together. And the Miss P brand was actually created as a result of my daughter, who encouraged me to bottle our family recipes for people like herself who want to enjoy quick, easy, flavorful, and healthy, authentic Caribbean meals right in their own kitchen. And that was, would be without spending a lot of time slicing the dice and blending all those herbs and spices. And I, in May of 2018, our first production batch was created, and it was right here in Ontario. I love that. But then, so you're, everything's going, and you've got, you're producing all of these great pastes and sauces and all-purpose seasoning mixes. 2020, pandemic. I mean, honestly, you've had everything thrown at you. How have you been able to survive as a business through this pandemic? So you're right, Anne. Um, it has not been easy. Uh, we had just completed our first year in business, our first full year in business as a small business. And it took a lot of pivoting for me. I had started off just the first six months from May 2018 to December started in small mom-and-pop stores, and in 2019, I made a big decision that I wanted to be in the bigger brand. I enrolled myself in three trade shows at the Care Center, which is the RC trade show, which is the restaurant caterers, the CL trade show, the National Doses, and the National Women's Show. And I was lucky enough to secure a contract with Metro, uh, Metro Supermarkets and Stobies off of there and some other small um, health stores. I was really looking forward to a good 2020, but then we all know what happened with COVID-19. After just completed our first year in business, in 2020, we were hit with the pandemic, and of course, everything for us went into freeze mode. As you can see, I'm not a quitter. I used all the resilience I had. I persevered. It didn't take me too long, uh, and I made up my mind that I was going to use the lockdown to my advantage, so... Between April to December 2020, I decided that I would get my products. I got my products actually listed on Amazon Canada. I started up a YouTube cooking channel. I applied and got my FDA approval, which actually we are now exporting to the U.S. And it's now on Amazon USA. I created a Shopify e-commerce website. I secured a contract with Gordon Foods for distribution. Uh, introduced small sample packs of our products for Christmas gifts, and I've applied for my trademark 
which is now pending approval. I also got all my products certified vegan. I applied for my non-GMO certification. That's now pending. Hmm. I started a meal delivery subscription program, and I'm now also working on approval to export to the USA. Wow. So, so a lot. The, nobody puts Miss P in the corner. That is for sure. And may I just say this to you for all that you have just described to us about what you've done through the pandemic? Here it is. Applause. Yay! I can't, yay. Thank you. Honestly, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I got to ask you, when I open up a jar of Miss P Caribbean sauces, what am I going to experience? Ah, uh, <laughs> you're going to experience the, and I have to say it's the, what I said, what others describe as a fusion of exotic and delicious, I call it a taste of home. Mm. And that's with the greatest joy that I want to share Miss P Caribbean flavors with you. So, the Caribbean foods, uh, what people um, should understand, Caribbean food is a melange of many different ethnic groups. So it's made up uh, with Spanish, Asian, uh, Dutch, uh, European. So so many flavors that come together to create it. It's one of the most fusion food that you can have. So in other words, Miss P, Caribbean sauce is, is kind of a United Nations version of, of, of what you've just described. It's, it's fr- flavors of countries from around the world all in one jar. I love that idea. You got it. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, yeah. so well yeah. there's a very sort of familial aspect to this business story, but there's also a very strong-willed business woman behind this story. Do do the two come together? You're a very family-oriented person, but you also are a smart cookie when it comes to business. Do the two come together from time to time? Yes, they did. And I will give you a classic uh, experience of this. Back in 2020, with all the resilience and the pivoting that I've gone to, I applied um, for BMO, was presenting... uh, the women entrepreneur grant, and with over a thousand plus women, small business owners that applied to entire Canada, it was one of my most recent and greatest accomplishments. That was in November of 2020. I was awarded the BMO Celebrating Women Entrepreneur Grant. So that was a great achievement for me, and I'm proud to acknowledge that. Bravo, so putting bravo. together the resilience, the hard work, the determination. Not ever given up. And, you know, one of the things Misty likes to say that a setback is a setup for a comeback. That's what I live off of. You know, you're a beacon of hope and you are the creator of things that are absolutely delicious that help us enjoy the taste of home. Thank you, Rebecca Taylor, a.k.a. Miss P, Caribbean Sauces, and the Mothership Ready to Go Foods Incorporated. Thank you for being you, number one, Rebecca Taylor, and thank you for all you do. Thank you, Anne, and it's truly my labor of love in every bottle of my sauces, and I want to wish everyone happy cooking, enjoy. We need to get our products. They're sold at Sobeys in the GPA, Sobeys, Metro, Amazon.com, the U.S. Amazon. Amazon Canada and Amazon USA and also on our own Shopify channels. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, like our post. I am Miss P. My face is on every bottle of my product. Please, if you have any questions, send me your feedback. I love to hear. I personally respond to you and love to also see pictures of 
post things that you can post in outside, help your meals that you're preparing. So happy cooking. Enjoy. Well done, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne. When we come back, a yacht club for everyone and flag football for fun. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. The Mimico Cruising Club wants you. Established in 1978, it has been growing in leaps and bounds as a private club with a relaxed attitude. This year, as we slowly and safely move away from the pandemic, the Mimico Cruising Club wants to promote greater inclusivity, the expansion of all things water sport, and fun and fine dining. In essence, it wants to change the perception people have about private yacht clubs. And joining us now on the feed are Commodore Will O'Hara and John Pereira, both devoted to the Mimico Cruising Club. They're here to tell us what its future looks like. Thank you, gentlemen, for being with us. Great to be here. So let's begin with you, Commodore Will O'Hara. What does that mean, by the way? What kind of title is that? Well, that's a, a throwback to the days of the uh, Royal Navy, and uh, the Commodore was the leader of the Navy, and it's a tradition that's come up really from uh, the Royal Navy all the way up to uh, um, yacht, yacht clubs and cruising clubs like ours over the eons. It's um, it's largely a decorative title at this stage, but uh, we still enjoy it. We have rear Commodores, vice Commodores, and uh, we, we uh, call them flag officers, and uh, that's where it comes from. And you also have a chief operating officer. That would be you, John. So let's dive into this. What is... What is your mission this year in terms of getting the word out about Mimico Cruising Club and also changing the perception and gathering new members? I believe our, our message is, uh, is quite simple. Uh, we're, we're an inclusive club. Uh, that we, we put a program together that uh, is affordable to, uh, you know, just to, not just to individuals with, uh, with yachts, but individuals that can come in at entry level. Um, for less than a thousand dollars, and can get themselves on the water and kind of get a taste of what club life is like, um, and then from there, um, you know, able to use our uh, club grounds and the uh, and the restaurant facilities. It sounds as if you are trying to change the perception of what a private club is all about. So, what is that perception currently, and what would you like people to come away with from this discussion, Will? Well, the private. Um, club aspect is uh, exactly true. It is a private club, and it remains a private club, but it's not a stuffy private club like you would think of when you think of a private club. We're a bunch of people who uh, live in the neighborhood for most part, or close to Mimico Cruising Club, and we uh, have a lot of fun together. We have a lot of social events going on. Uh, people are decent and helpful. We're actually a self-help club, which means that when the restaurant is operating, we are required to clear our own tables and <laughs> put the dishes in, in, in a bucket. <laughs> it's a throwback for a self-help club, so we're not stuffy in any way. 
I think that has something to do with John Pereira, who has a history uh, in hospitality management and uh, has worked at places like the Weston Harbor Castle and Club Link and Toronto Board of Trade. Kind of like get your hands dirty and get your feet wet at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, Will, Will uh, nailed it when he said a, a self-help club. The, the essence of the club is, uh, you know, we very much are a small community. And within a community, everyone looks out for each other. Everyone looks out to, you know, how to better the enjoyment of individuals that are here. Um, and, you know, the, the, thank, thankfully the staff are, you know, well-trained. And think what are the way to make sure that that, uh, that lives up to the expectation. Uh, but, again, it's, it's a small community. It's members helping members. Um, and it's very much... Uh, lending a hand to individuals that uh, that are that are that are that are need, and uh, like I said, again, very much opening the door to uh, low entry membership. And you know, you're in one of the most beautiful pockets of the Greater Toronto Area, Park Lawn and Lakeshore area in Humber Bay Park. I mean, it couldn't get any better than that. I drove by a billboard of yours, by the way, recently, not knowing that we were going to be having this discussion. And it says, Mimico Cruising Club, get social, get Mimico CC, paddling, social and dining memberships less than $1,000. That really is quite incredible. Can you then describe what the experience will be like for someone who is taking a low-entry membership with you? Well, this is the uh, the thin end of the wedge here, thin edge of the wedge, where you come in uh, with a paddleboard or a canoe or a kayak, and you can become a social member. You can, you can be a social member without a boat, but uh, the idea is that if you pay an extra $150, you can keep a boat here, store it here, have access to the water, and uh, store your life jacket, store whatever you want. And then after you've gone out, to come up and have a drink on the patio or grab some supper and mingle, get to know people. Uh, the idea is that maybe the next year, a few years after, uh, if the pilot project succeeds, you'll be able to uh, maybe buy a small boat and then buy a larger boat. It's a two-foot-itis for every sailor, every boater and um, eventually become a senior A member. But it's um, whatever you want to make of it, it's, uh, it's a starter, a start project for us. And what prompted this? Why did you decide that this was the time to roll out this pilot project, and what was the motivation for the pilot project in the first place? You know, if, if you take a look at uh, the last year and a half that, uh, that everyone's gone through, and, you know, what better way of introducing an, uh, an activity to the area for a very low fee uh, that brings them in and makes them feel that they're, uh, you know, that they've actually gone to uh, to resort, but literally they've gone to their backyard. It's, you know, a great way of introducing the club to, um, to I guess, that surrounding areas to individuals that didn't think they could afford to, uh, to be at a club. Uh, very much taking a look at it, saying it is very affordable. It is an entry level. It does get you on the water, and it you know it, it, it gets you out of your gets you out of the Zoom calls. It gets you out of the uh, the boardrooms and gets you on the water and in a in a, in a beautiful park like setting um, with uh, you know restaurant and bar and with individuals that are there to lend a hand. That's, that was the whole vision of where this came from. And I want to ask you, Commodore O'Hara, 
your description of the water, how do you feel about the water, being on it, being in it, being a part of it? What is it that makes your heart race a little faster? Well, everything about uh, everything that you described, uh, uh, I'm a, a sailboater, and so I race on Wednesday nights and uh, do that. It's always fun. It's always exciting. Uh, nail-biting at times, but it's it's uh, great to be on the water going up and down the shores, and that's lovely. Something about the water that is infectious, and once you get it, well, it can't be cured, and um, that's why we're all here. <laughs> and John Pereira, Chief Operating Officer with a history in hospitality, breaking bread has been something that is has brought people together for centuries. The idea of mingling and having a drink and having a nice meal with people that you know or you don't know, that's that's really special, particularly as we are moving out of the pandemic. Absolutely. Um I think everyone's got the eager, you know, they they're, haven't been able to go on vacation, haven't been able to, uh, to go out. And, uh, you know, now that everything has opened up, um, it is absolutely fantastic that you can, you know, get together with, uh, with some friends, get together with family that you really haven't seen or been around or anything else for, for a while, and to sit on a patio over, you know, a nice cold drink uh, with, uh, with, you know, with some, with some hot food, uh, friendly individuals uh, with a beautiful scenery. I mean, I, honest to God, I couldn't ask for anything more. It, it's spectacular. Well, you've both described it so beautifully. Mimico Cruising Club. How, if people are interested in joining, how can they find out more? Uh, they can go to our website, Mimico Cruising Club, and all of the information is available there. And John Pereira, I think you're going to have the last word on this one. Why should someone think about becoming a member? Uh, actually, that's probably the easiest question that we can answer. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you take a look uh, at community environments, um, individuals that love to help each other, a great uh, park-like setting. You got the refreshing water uh, ahead. You got entry level membership at a low fee for a thousand dollars. I mean, honestly, it's it's a great way of, of getting into it. Yeah, affordable is the name of the game these days as well. I want to thank you both, Commodore Will O'Hara and John Pereira, Mimico Cruising Club. Thanks for being with us on the feed. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. <laughs> Next on the feed, flag football for everyone. Jim Lang, under the lights. All right, it's down to sports. We're back to activities, back to getting active. Not a moment too soon to talk more about a really cool program. Thrilled to be joined by the CEO of Under the Lights Canada, UA Flag Football with Under Armour, Jonathan Nadelkovich. Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing great today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Flag football is the foundation for some of the best players in the NFL and CFL. It's a great way to learn the sport from the grassroots and the foundation. Talk more about, before we get to the program, why flag football is just such a great way to learn how to play the sport. 
Absolutely. I couldn't say it enough. I'm super passionate about grassroots football starting at that catch and throw level. And um, we have a program that starts at kindergarten, as young as kindergarten, all the way up to grade eight, where the first thing we do in sport is really get low, catch a ball, throw a ball, run. And that's everything fundamentally we teach with uh, Under Armour Flag Football. Now, the amazing thing about it is Tom Brady, after all these years, he'll talk about in the offseason working on his fundamentals. Even after everything he's done, he still practices it. Absolutely. Uh, DK Metcalf, Tom Brady, they talk about it all the time. If you look at the best athletes out there, they have to find something in the offseason um, to complement what they're doing in season. And the only way to do that is actually through something like non-contact flag football. Um, it, even going for a flag, a lot of people don't realize this. We teach this to the coaches fundamentally. When you get low and reach for a flag and try to pull that flag away, it's the same thing. You're getting low just like when you're, you know, let's say going for a tackle in football, right? So yeah. um, something so small, but uh, something that people don't realize fundamentally uh, to teach kids to be better athletes. The website is uaflag.com. It's co-ed, K to the 12th grade. It's six versus six with a sack count, nine players per roster. And as you guys like to say, everyone plays. Absolutely. I can't say it enough. Everyone plays. Everybody has fun. Everybody's going to get their first touchdown catch. Everybody's going to get their first interception in a season. And that's why we keep it and limit the rosters. So we have that coach to player ratio that's really high with a head coach and an assistant coach helping out. Um, and uh, yeah, the kids are having a ton of fun. And I can't tell you how many other sports baseball, hockey, we have full teams that enter their, their teams to come play flag football, um, and they swear by it. Well, Jonathan, it's amazing you say that. I've talked to athletes in other sports, and they all say it's so important to play a different sport in the offseason. It makes you a better athlete. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And when you're on a field, let's say it's turf or grass outdoors, um, it's something where in football, there's nothing you're not doing that you're not going to um, be transitioning to another sport out there. So, and uh, you're in fresh air. What more could you ask for? Now, part of the uh, signing up fee for the kids, for the, the boys and girls part of it, you get an Under Armour Games shirt and shorts. So you have all your equipment you need and get some decent running shoes and cleats and you're good to go. And you're good to go. Yes, you still wear a mouth guard, um, yeah. and uh, just for in, in, you know um, anything that might happen, you still want to wear a mouth guard to be safe. But we have the shirts, we have the shorts. You just need the cleats, and you're ready to go. So it's UA Very flag, expensive. yeah, UA flag football or uaflag.com, uaflag.com. Is there an email that people can use as well if they want to get more information to sign their sons or daughters up for this? Absolutely. The standard email for us is Canada at uaflag.com, and then we'll be able to get that and distribute that to, obviously, that local operator. Um, and uh, once you go to uaflag.com, you can go to Canada locations, and you can find whatever uh, and wherever you are at the local level. Canada at uaflag.com and find the geographical area you're in and sign up. Uh, for, for, about your background in football, Jonathan, where did your love of football come from? 
my love of football uh, started um, just in elementary school, played for the North York Bandits, uh, you know, just outside Toronto there, and retired from semi-pro football at the age of 38, so 10 years ago, ever since been coaching um, and uh, running a football organization up here in the small town of Georgetown, and um, yeah, been playing uh, over the border, um, played down in the States, in North Carolina, and then uh, played in Buffalo semi-pro for, for many years. No, where'd you play in North Carolina before you went semi-pro? It was a smaller school, Chawan University. It was a D2 school when I went down there. Uh, and then when I came back up to Canada, uh, started my own business and played for the Buffalo Warriors and uh, the Buffalo Gladiators. Previous to that, played for the Toronto Athletics, which was a uh, junior team for the Toronto Argos. Uh, back in, geez, I'm dating myself, 1990, <laughs> early 1990s. So, Speaking to Jonathan Nedeljkovic, the CEO of Under the Lights Canada UA Flag Football, uh, our youngest daughter was a cheerleader for the Huron Heights uh, high school football team in Newmarket, and they were the Kings of York region. And, you know, whether it's York region, whether it's Richview Collegiate, whether it's some of the schools in London, Ontario, um, and out west in Quebec, Canada's producing some outstanding youth football players who are going to either Canadian or American university level football. Absolutely. And I can't tell you enough. There's actually, um, we know um, through Anthony Cannon, who is uh, my business partner here with uh, UA Flight Canada, uh, he played for the Detroit Lions and uh, also played for the Toronto Argos. And he swears by it. Um, at the end of the day, there was just somebody scouted by a university in the States because of COVID, not being able to play contact up here in Canada, but because he was playing competitive 77 and non-contact football, that game tape, that game tape he sent down to the States. He's a defensive end playing flag football and touch football. Uh, and that seeing that game tape gave him the opportunity to actually get down to the States because they saw how dynamic he was, uh, and, uh, how, how he was able to move on the field, even as a big defensive lineman. Well, Jonathan, if you're good, they'll find you, and you know that. And a great way to be found is uaflag.com. Email Canada at uaflag.com. I think it's a wonderful initiative from kindergarten to 12th grade, co-ed, six versus six. There's a sack count, nine players. Everyone plays. You get your Under Armour, you get your shirt, your shorts, and you have fun, and you learn how to play the sport the right way. You can't get better than that, Jonathan. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. So looking forward to, to everybody uh, joining on. And uh, we've got, you know, we, we've got 20 strong in the GTA and surrounding areas. Uh, York, obviously, Region South is uh, one of our operators there. Fabio has a great program that he's actually just uh, just launching in the next week or so. So. Well, here's to uh, more growth and more young boys and girls playing flag football and learning how to do it the right way. Jonathan, thank you so much. All the best and great success with the UA flag football. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.